my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys are having a fantastic week. Uh, great show today. I was joined by my good friend Brad Devlin um, from Elephant in the Room Podcast and The Daily Caller. It's always a great time talking to Brad. We talked about, uh, we did a lot of foreign policy talk today. We, we discussed the uh, groundbreaking peace deal up between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. We talked about uh, the war in Afghanistan, reducing troop levels there. Uh, we talked about some of the latest uh, uh, gaffes from the, the Biden-Harris team uh, over the weekend, and we talked about some, some polling stuff and all things 2020-related. And we covered a lot of ground. I hope you guys enjoy it. I think you will. Uh, before we get to Brad, please, guys, follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or Spotify. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And if you like what you're hearing and want to get involved, hit us up over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Podcast. All right. Without further ado, here is my chat with the great Brad Devlin. <laughs> All right, guys, we're here with host of the Elephant in the Room podcast and a brand new reporter for The Daily Caller, my brother, Brad Devlin. Brad, how you doing? Hey, man. Good to hear from you. Yeah, man. It's always a good time talking to you. Um, all right. We have a ton to cover today, uh, as always. Um, you know, we haven't had a lot of good news to discuss lately, Brad, but yesterday was a good day. Uh, first time in a while. Uh, major progress towards peace in the Middle East happening right now. Um, yesterday, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, as well as the leaders of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, uh, met with the president at the White House to sign the Abraham Accords, uh, the first major peace deal in the Middle East in 26 years. Um, I mean, look, the press is doing their best to ignore this or, or downplay it, but uh, this is fantastic news. Uh, undoubtedly fantastic news. Um, you know, we can get into the nitty gritty of it, but really what you're seeing is kind of a collapse in the 21st century conventional foreign policy wisdom, which has been generally dominated by a neoconservative ideological or uh, neoliberal ideological, like even under the Obama administration, it was rather neoliberal. It just took a really interesting, um, ineffective, in my opinion, stance on the Middle East. Right. Um, so that we're kind of seeing that wither away with with these new developments. And we can talk exactly how these these uh, elements came to breach, because, you know, in part, it's it's on the Obama administration. In part, it's on the willingness of um, Bahrain and and uh, the United Arab Emirates to really come into the fold and normalize relations with Israel. Some things, um, something that they've been kind of hinting at and working on for the past few decades. And it's also um, on the Palestinians who have really failed uh, at every turn to negotiate a peace with Israel, because Israel's always said yes, Palestinians said not. Right, and it just upends the Obama doctrine, which is to try to appease the Palestinians, try to appease the Iranians. Um, I'm not quite sure why uh, that was the consensus uh, tactic under under President Obama, but uh, yeah, I mean, with with the Obama administration embracing Iran, obviously uh, the, the horrible Iran nuclear deal, which basically just kicked the can down the road, that scared a lot of our allies in in and some of our enemies <laughs> in uh, in the Middle East, and they've they've warmed up to Israel. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the president said yesterday up to nine additional Arab countries uh, could soon join the UAE and Bahrain in making peace with Israel, including, you know, the big dog, which is uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, first of all, when the Saudis, if and when the Saudis get on board, we're in business. I mean, that would legitimately, uh, that, that could be world-changing progress uh, to get the Saudis on board. Um, and But also keep in mind, the UAE and Bahrain never would have come to the table. They never would have signed this without the support of the Saudis. So I'm, I'm definitely optimistic. Right. I mean, what's the result? What has been the result of uh, Egypt and Jordan normalizing relations with Israel? And the result has been not massive state land war. Right now, you know, Israel's obviously fighting terrorist elements in Hamas, terrorist elements within the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority itself. Um, but time and time again, after... The United States has done a role, has played a role in strengthening Israel's hand. Um, achieving some sort of peace deal has been much, much easier. That happened um, in the wake of 1973, like that culminated in the Camp David Accords. 
um, things of that nature. So this is a great development, the first uh, Arab country to come around in 26 years to normalize relations with Israel. Um, and really, you have to shout out Joe Biden and Barack Obama's foreign policy for uh, <laughs> basically creating this strange uh, group of group of friends who are incredibly wary of Iran's influence uh, in the region. You know, just the contrast, uh, just just showing that the Obama administration bet on the wrong horse. Um, I mean, there's some there's some beautiful scenes yesterday. I mean, they there were the uh, in the UAE in Dubai. Um, they played the uh, the Israeli national anthem in, in Dubai, uh, you know, and then a newspaper in Saudi Arabia, um, the the front the front page of of the Saudi newspaper uh, translated to something saying saying you know praising this peace deal and saying you know looking forward to peace with Israel and stuff. And then the Palestinians shot you know dozens of rockets into Israel trying to murder Jews, and then the Iranians. Uh, that said they wanted to destroy Israel. Okay, so it's so like, I mean, the Obama administration clearly were betting on the wrong horse here, and just the, the reaction from both sides uh, to this peace deal is just startling. Yeah, and I think uh, you, you mentioned Barack Obama betting on the wrong horse. I think that's exactly right. I think what Obama did was Obama had, and, and his advisors, Ben Rhodes, Tommy Vader, things like that, had a, uh, Susan Rice too, had a misconception that the barrier to peace was... Um, Israel's inflexibility. Well, Israel's been constantly at war since its founding. Um, <laughs> like really, it's been it's been under threat since its founding, and so you can't expect um, such a side to be flexible. But nonetheless, on multiple occasions after the Peel after the after the Peel Commission, um, after the UN voted to create a two state solution, uh, after uh, the Six Day War, after um, uh, or I'm sorry, at, at the, uh, what was the name of the accords in, uh, the Clinton administration? Um, basically in 2000, in 2000 and 2008, right. They, they say no again and again. And Israel right. offers vast amounts of what they consider to be Palestinian territory, not they as in the Israel, Israel, but the Palestinian authority or the PLO considered to be Palestinian territory. Like in 2000, they offered 94% of the West bank and all of Gaza to, to the, uh, to the Palestinians, but the Palestinians again, reject the offer. So that was Obama's biggest misconception, um, I believe, uh, which was that the United States um, needed to be more of a neutral arbiter and not stand on the side of Israel. And I said, and as I said before, uh, that isn't what catalyzes peace in the Middle East. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and obviously, this peace deal is, is, a, is a bulwark against the Iranian influence in the region. Um, but also, Money talks. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, all these Arab states have been supporting the Palestinians for decades, and you know, it just seems to me that they got tired of of the Palestinians. These run by a, a degenerate terrorist organization. They're they're tired of the Palestinians holding their country back economically. I mean, they have a lot more to gain. Uh, you know, normalizing relations with Israel, opening up trade, opening up travel between these nations, than they do supporting the Palestinian Authority. I mean, I think they just. They got annoyed with these folks holding them back, and and now I think both sides of this deal are going to prosper uh, economically from this. Yeah, I think one of Trump's the Trump administration's best move um, was that the the Trump administration had that inkling that I was talking about earlier that okay the the route to peace is one that is going to bolster our allies. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have an on the ground presence, and we can talk about that a little bit later. What does bolstering your allies really mean? Um, but they had this, this wisdom that it was actually the Palestinians and not necessarily the Israelis that were a barrier to peace in the, in the Middle East. So the administration held a conference in Bahrain, uh, I believe in 2019. Um, and this was, you know, they were going to talk about a $50 billion economic plan for the Palestinian territories. And obviously, um, a lot of the Arab states were very, very interested in this and they wanted to attend. And so they all showed up, but who didn't show up? The Palestinians. Yep. So it showed everyone that were actually that was actually interested in helping the Palestinians, including Israel, were interested in helping the Palestinians, but the Palestinians weren't necessarily interested in helping themselves. So they looked like foolish for showing up. And the Palestinians have had basically a veto power on what you just said. Uh, these Arab states countries foreign policy for the past uh, 60 years, right? They, they've basically been able to veto any move that they wanted to make. That's why Bahrain um, and the UAE has kind of uh, behind the scenes um, 
increase their connections with Israel, but now it's a full open normalization of economic relations. And that wouldn't have happened um, really, I think, without this realization from both sides that, okay, the Palestinian Authority has not has long not been interested in making peace with Israel. So why are we letting them still be a barrier to peace that we both find mutual interest in, especially with a new uh, an emerging, more aggressive Iran? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we, we have to mention real quick, before moving on, we have to mention the, the way the press covered this yesterday. I mean, the, the press was unbelievable yesterday, man. I mean, the the, the network evening, evening news, this is all the networks combined, gave the peace deal signing a combined one minute and 15 seconds. Really? <laughs> Where most... did you find that? That's unbelievable. Yeah, they reported it on Fox wanna, News this morning. I, I want to write that. I want to yeah. write that. I'm, yeah, th- I'm writing is... that for the caller when we get off. I hope you know that. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this was reported on, on Fox News this morning. I, f- I forget which program, but you'll be able to find it. But, uh, I mean, a, a minute and 15 seconds combined. I mean, that's just astounding. CNN didn't even discuss the treaty, uh, but they did spend a significant amount of time whining about how people in the audience weren't wearing masks. Okay, yes, yeah. a historic peace deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the largest step towards peace in the Middle East in several decades. And the, the story is some people in the audience weren't wearing a mask. Like, the, also, these people are just incredible. Yeah. And, and one of the, like, you saw it when the, first, the peace deal was announced in August. Biden tried to take credit for it. Um, people saying that it's a distraction from the real issue, which is the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, oh, no, come this on. Is a, and, and I think that that's a really, really, uh, it's a really important point to make that this issue isn't strictly an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's an Israeli-Arab conflict yes. that has driven 70, 70 years yes. of conflict between within the region. And the Palestinians have dominated um, the Arab side of the equation, but now you're seeing that, that break up. And why? Well, Joe Biden likes to take credit for it, um, for this peace deal, saying that Trump really didn't have any part of it. And I'm willing to give Joe Biden credit for it because it was the Obama administration's nuclear deal that really bolstered Iran by giving it, by unfreezing some of its assets, flying pallets of cash over to the Iranian terrorist regime. And th- all this despite the fact that the the uh, Iranian regime was in violation of the nuclear deal on four separate accounts at least. We know that Iran was operating more advanced uranium enrichment and centrifuges than was allowed, and that they said they could mass produce them. They we knew that they were exceeding limits on their heavy water storage. We knew that they were procuring missile technology, which is outside of JCPOA-approved channels, and developing um, ICBM technology um, before the sunset provisions set in, which the sunset provisions were idiotic in the first place. Right. And then also, they were also refusing to allow IAEA inspectors to access nuclear research facilities. And the only one that was uh, really well-regulated or well-inspected was the Parshan military base, which was self-inspected by the Iranians. Right. So you, do you really think the mullahs, do you really think the supreme leader is going to be uh, letting these Iranian inspectors come out with their honest results? I highly doubt it. Um, so all of this, all of this was obtained by, a lot, a lot of it was obtained by German intel- intelligence. Um, and even the IAEA um, obtained evidence that there was covert nuclear weapons work happening. So Trump was right to pull out of the Iran deal, given that they were in violation of the deal, which is which is in accordance with with the Iran Nuclear Review Act, um, which says basically that the, the administration needs to report on whether or not Iran is in violation of the deal um, or is or is not in uh, in compliance with the deal. And the State Department kept coming back um, to the administration. The administration would forward on the message that, no, they're not in violation of the deal. There's no material violations. And they kept using that word, material violations. So they were in violation, just not in a violation big enough to where the State Department wanted to admit that they were, um, or at least the Obama administration, State Department wanted to admit they were wrong. Um, and so the reaction that has come after, J- you know, Trump pulling out of the JCPOA, um, Trump killing Qasem Soleimani, uh, that we were going to go to war with Iran, um, which would have been the quickest war in, in history, given what we did in Operation Mantis uh, a few, you know, a, a decade and a half or a few decades back. Um, so, so really, I I do have to give credit to the Obama administration foreign policy for creating this this, as I said, strange group of friends um, that are realizing they need to come together and work together towards peace because the forces working to undermine peace are so malicious 
and are not just content with the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, they truly are set on dominating the region, and that includes their own countries. So I, I you know, the, the press reaction has been underwhelming um, at the most important turns because none of this would have been possible without Trump's previous moves to bolster Israel, our strongest ally in the region, um, and Trump's obviously uh, closening ties to Saudi Arabia as well. Um, and when you know when new, when good news come out comes out, they hardly cover it. But when uh, news that comes out comes out that they are going to bolster our allies uh, in defiance of Iran, it's World War Three time and time again. Yeah, you're right, and and, and you're absolutely correct that uh, you know this probably wouldn't have been made possible without the Obama administration completely mishandling every possible move uh, in the Middle East for eight years. You know, it looks like by, you know, pushing the Arabs uh, into into bed with the Israelis, um, you know, Obama might have accidentally earned that uh, that Nobel Peace Prize that, <laughs> that he was given preemptively uh, just for being elected president. But a few, uh, I just have to bring this up real quick. A few leftist journos that did address uh, this, this peace treaty signing, most of them just ignored it, but the few that did address it this is the most annoying thing that lefties do, and, and it's when they just pretend like they've never heard of history, or they pretend to be shocked and just not understand what's going on. So here's a tweet from Aaron Rupar from, from Vox. He said, quote, reality check, Israel has never gone to war with the UAE or Bahrain, <laughs> unquote. I mean, it's like, this is the, my least favorite thing that these people do, and I don't understand, just a side note, Brad, I don't understand why they keep using this tactic. I mean, I, I think you and I generally, um, like, we want people to think that we're smarter than we really are, you know? Um, so this whole, like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this lefty journo tactic where it's like, why would they even need a peace deal? I'm so stupid. I've never heard of history before. I've never read a book. It's like, that's that's just a weird look, man. That's a weird look, Aaron. I don't know why. <laughs> Come on. Anybody with a brain understands the magnitude of this peace deal. I don't know why you're pretending to be ignorant. Right. I. Uh, it's unbelievable to me that that the reaction coming out of the media is is so slanted in one direction. And as I said, like this isn't just Trump administration glory 2020. You know, this this does bode well for Trump's reelection prospects as he's been um, a strong advocate for pulling troops out of the region, which is a fairly popular position given the Iraq wars, um, complete collapse in, in popular support. Right. Um, you know, uh, really it, it's, it's, I, 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 I'm trying to find the words for it because I, I've never seen something so glossed over so quickly. Like Trump is announced that he's going to be a, a candidate for the Nobel Peace Prize. And what breaks that day? The Woodward story, which instantly dominates all media coverage. Um, if something like that dropped, like let's say if, if a scandal dropped in the Obama administration, like Fast and Furious, for example, and Obama was no nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, as he was before, uh, you know, well, I'm not saying that these two incidents converged, Fast and Furious and, and the Nobel Peace Prize, but the Nobel Peace Prize would dominate the headlines. And I think that it's really, really important to, to recognize that this isn't just the Trump administration's doing. It is primarily um, the doing of, of Bahrain and the UAE for taking bold steps and actions that they were doing covertly, but now they're doing openly um, in this in this new era in the Middle East. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that there, there's credit to be given to the Trump administration and uh there's credit to, to be given to Jared Kushner and people who have kind of come out against the traditional foreign policy wisdom that has gotten us into a slew of slimy conflicts in the post-Cold War era that we really had no business getting our nose into. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I want to we need to get back to, uh, you know, domestic politics here in just a second. But I want to mention one more um, foreign policy issue uh, before we move on and uh, talk about the press, you know, glossing things over. I mean, th this is a story that will get absolutely no coverage at all, but it's extremely important. Brad, remember a few months back um, when the president said he wanted to pull some troops out of Afghanistan, then five seconds later, uh, an anonymous source within the, de the Defense Department leaked to the New York Times that Russia was paying the Taliban to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and therefore we needed to stay in Afghanistan for another 7,000 years. Um, well, NBC is now reporting that after two months of investigation— the Pentagon can come it has come to the conclusion that there is zero evidence that this ever took place. Um, I'm shocked, shocked. As, <laughs> as soon as the president talks about ending a war, anonymous leakers tell the Times that actually we need to stay 
at war forever because the Ruskies. <laughs> I'm shocked, Brad. I'm shocked to find gambling in this establishment. I, I am. I am shocked that uh, the neocons and the deep state want to keep swivel. us in war. Yeah. It's a it's a hell of a swivel for sure, given that the, the Democrats all of a sudden, now that Trump is against the Iraq war, are now for the Iraq war and for the conflict in Afghanistan. Right. One hell of a turn. Um, yeah, one thing I'll say about the, the bounties, right? Like the, the whole crux of this story is that the National Security Council did have intelligence, but were, was not able to verify it. I believe that the only thing that they mentioned was like an offhanded comment to Trump about them them looking into it and that the intelligence wasn't pat, right. um, you know, wasn't good enough yet for that for him to receive a full briefing. And thus Trump said and did nothing about it. And that's what Trump got raked over the coals for. Trump did or said nothing about um, these soldiers uh, who were having bounties placed on them, right, by by the by Russia, by Putin. And it turns out that I guess Trump was was um, right to do nothing, given that it most likely didn't happen, according to the Pentagon. Again, I have a strong mistrust for government, as you do, um, but I don't think the Pentagon is lying here. If the Pentagon was lying, um, there's enough media interest in the story. There's enough. Um, I think there's enough interests uh, that are in favor of making the president look look bad, are in favor of you know confronting this type of story for them to actually come out and, and prove it. Um, so the Pentagon's the Pentagon's assessment here kind of proves that the National Security Council was was right in their assessment of the intelligence. Um, and so the, and also it's it's a good thing that our soldiers didn't have bounties placed on them. I don't understand the outrage of people saying, well, it probably happened anyway. But the Pentagon is just, you know, it's another it's another cover up by the Trump administration. You hear this time and time again. And, and I, I think that that is a dangerous language, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. And just for me, man, the contrast can't be more clear. Um between the Democrats and, and whatever you want to call it, the deep state, the foreign policy establishment, um, and the Trump administration. You know, <laughs> Endless wars, leaks, soft on Iran, hostile towards Israel, first support for Israel, tough on Iran, reductions in troop levels, no new wars, ground, groundbreaking peace deals. <laughs> you know, if you care about peace, uh, at least to me, the choice is pretty clear in November. Well, one and one question I actually had for you when we're uh, talking about troop withdrawal like trump had a tweet earlier i believe this week was you know i want to take the the troops home too and then tucker carlson kind of did a a full breakdown on on that i believe actually i believe the tweet was quote tweeting the video of tucker's monologue saying that the president should bring more troops home um what's stopping the president that's the question that i'm kind of thinking about is the man is the president of the united states he has the authority to take some to bring more of these troops home if he so desires to do so. What is stopping him from doing that? And I, I, I think that that is a question that Trump needs to be pushed a little bit harder on. Like, hey, you know, that would be awesome if we could, I don't know, do something about that. But, you know, who's the president of the United States? You are. You are. You are the president of the United States. You've done, I mean, he's performed troop reductions, yes, um, after the destruction of ISIS, which was, you know, I, I wasn't for troop reductions until the destruction of ISIS totally and completely. Um, and that has occurred under the Trump admi- the Trump administration. And the question remains to Trump is, okay, you've started to dial back our on-the-ground troop presence in the Middle East, um, and you still want to bring more home. So what's stopping you from doing so, given that you're the president of the United States? I believe that there, there deserves to be a little bit more pushback on the right and on the left on this on this question. Um because, because as I said, like this kind of goes to the, what I was saying before about bolstering our allies. Bolstering our allies um, in the era of the Cold War um, did mean, you know, oftentimes troops on the ground. It was during Richard Nixon's and, and you know, Henry Kissinger's diplomacy in the Yom Kippur War. Yes, we didn't have necessarily a ton of boots on the ground in, in the region at the time. Or, I'm, you know, we weren't super involved in the conflict, but the, the diplomacy on the back end and U.S. military presence in the region um, is what kind of strengthens Israel's hand. And then the conversations that emerged from the uh, from the Gulf War, which the U.S. was involved in. So I think now you're, you've kind of seen in a, in a now that we're farther out from the Cold War um, and we've kind of decided that we're going to wane our troop presence in the Middle East, we have other avenues of bolstering our allies. And how have we done that? Well, we've moved our embassy to Jerusalem. Well, we've come out and recognized Israel's right to uh, to the territory of the Golan Heights. We've done we've taken other more diplomatic measures um, that can sh- signal strong support for Israel if they were to get into some sort of conflict 
um, whether it be another Intifada or whether it be another all-out war that kind of resulted uh, in the peace deal that we saw. Um, so the question remains for Trump is, is as I said before, why aren't these troops coming home in higher numbers, given that you're the president of the United States? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, I don't know what's in these uh, security briefings he gets every day that—, that uh that leads him to believe he can't just pull everybody out of Afghanistan immediately. And like, I'm not one of these libertarians that just says, you know, bring every single soldier home from everywhere across the globe right now. You know, I'm not like going full Ron Paul or anything, but like, let's just take it case by case. I mean, like smart people who I disagree with, you know, can make a lot of arguments about leaving troops in Iraq and even leaving troops in Syria, you know, got to protect the Kurds and and all that stuff. Um, I haven't heard any, um, intelligent defense on leaving boots on the ground in Afghanistan. At least not at this point. At least not in the last five-ish years. I haven't heard any any neocon or, or neolib uh, able to, to even pose a, a believable argument. I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for, shoot, man, 19 years. <laughs> 19 years. It's America's longest war. And, uh, I mean, just going back to the history of Afghanistan in the last, you know, 60 years or so, there's just no reason to have troops there. I mean, the, the Carter administration tricked the Soviet Union into invading Afghanistan because uh, 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 National Security Advisor uh, Brzezinski at the time said, quote, we needed to give them their own Vietnam, meaning it's an unwinnable war. I mean, Genghis Khan couldn't hold Afghanistan, right? It's been a fool's errand um, for hundreds, right. hundreds of years. I mean, the Ottoman Empire had, had trouble in Afghanistan. Everybody, I mean, it's just, it's impossible um, I mean, it's just a bunch of warring factions and tribes living in the mountains, picking off American soldiers. I mean, it's not—it's just not beneficial. There's nothing for us there. Um, I've—I've I've not heard. I mean, I'm not even talking about bring all the troops home. I'm not using that talking point or anything like that. You can make the case we need to stick around in Iraq and it's etc. But Afghanistan, like that's the million-dollar question for me. Why are we nobody? I haven't heard anybody give a convincing. Uh, breakdown on why we should still have i forget how many troops we have five seven thousand something like that troops in afghanistan it makes absolutely no sense to me yeah and and you know i wasn't giving an endorsement my last answer in, in any way because oh, i no, think I this is a, a way complicated question i just think that trump deserves a little bit more pushback you know hey, hey you're the president of the united states it'd be crazy if you could do something about that um but yeah i i think i think i'm i'm largely in agreement with you on the Afghanistan question, I think one of the more convincing arguments for the Afghanistan uh, question, though, for having some sort of presence there, is is the their connections and operations with uh, TCOs, transnational criminal operations, right? right? So a lot of those, you know, the opium fields are going to right. efforts to fund uh, cartels in South America. So it is it is a you know it, you can't narrow the scope too harshly on Afghanistan. This is a broader issue that are connected to. Um, all sorts of criminal terrorist activity that the United States is fighting ac- across the globe. But no one's really made that argument fully fleshed out. And the obviously the big rejection of that argument is, hey, well, every single time the United States goes in and takes over some opium fields and burns them to the ground, five more crop up, you know, and, and the, the region is just like specifically Afghanistan is just so difficult uh, to maintain power in, which is why they've maintained largely tribal structures throughout their history is because the terrain is just so difficult to control. Um, so, so there's, you know, it, it really is like if there's ever a jar of worms, Afghanistan is a jar of worms. And so, um, it, it, it's a, it's a can of worms. Arguments on of, both sides of that. Yeah. It's a can of worms. I'm, we just I'm can't. happy to hear. I, I just think in Afghanistan, man, it's a can of worms that we just have no business dealing with at this point. And, and, and I, I mean, you did make a good point. I mean, Trump has tweeted a lot about uh, pulling troops out of Afghanistan. He is he is reducing the troop presence in Afghanistan by 20%, something like that. He's bringing a couple thousand home. Um, that is happening, I, right. think, I think, this month. But you're right. I mean, I, I, I could do a lot less uh, agreeing with a cable news host that you should bring <laughs> the troops home from Afghanistan and more actually bringing troops home from Afghanistan. Or, like you said, just explaining to the American people why or why not. You know, let's just, let's. Uh, what, are you, what are you reading? Like, what are you seeing? Why can't we end the war in Afghanistan. If you can convince me, I'm, I'm all ears. Like, I'm not, you know, immobile on, on this issue. But, but yeah, it's so, all right, before I let you go, Brad, I know we're running out of time. Um, let's get to the presidential race just real briefly. Um, a couple gaffes from the Biden-Harris uh, team 
and well, Biden and Harris specifically themselves <laughs> in the last 24 hours or so. All right, polls have been all over the place, but a few recent polls in Florida have suggested that Trump is making major inroads with Hispanic voters. Um, obviously, the Biden team has seen the same data um, because they sent Joe Biden <laughs> to attend a Hispanic heritage event in, in Florida yesterday. And apparently the former vice president's strategy to win over Latinos in Florida was to go to the podium, whip out his cell phone and play Despacito uh, on the mic. Um, man. <laughs> like that is, dude I, I made me like look if the democratic agenda wasn't so evil I, i'd feel much worse for joe biden um but like i i was literally cringing like watching that video i'm like i felt bad for the guy i'm like what are you doing why is his hand why didn't anybody stop him from doing this like sir are you going to whip out your phone and play a song in spanish because that would probably not be the best idea like really there's no nobody his wife can't be like joe what what are you doing? What are you thinking? Well, I mean, coming from the same people that advised him, it'd be a great idea to go on an interview with Cardi B yeah. to uh, try to secure the African American vote. <laughs> um, I don't I don't think they'll find any qualms with this, really. Um, I also love Justin Bieber, notable Hispanic, um, but I just got major vibes of like I had a great tweet that got no traction, and I'm kind of pissed. It was <laughs> Joe. It was quote tweeting Trump's tweet. Of I love Hispanics with the taco bowl and he's I like Trump it. Tower makes the best taco bowls. Hashtag I love Hispanics. That was <laughs> ma- like the major Joe Biden vibes that I got from him playing Despacito the other day. This um, is worse. So though. Despacito's like, worse. Joe like, Biden's Florida pitch. The the I love Hispanics taco bowl thing was bad and cringe, but it was also hilarious. Like this was just uncomfortable. Like I was like physically this is, uncomfortable this is watching this. Yeah. Yes. It's like it's like uh, those moments in It's Always Sunny where yes. it's just like Danny DeVito is doing something so moronic and you're laughing, but like your insides hurt because you're just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why? Why are you doing this this way? And then instantly Trump tweets out like, I love Pennsylvania. And it's just a giant Philly cheesesteak right in front of him. Oh, <laughs> Brady, politics is so stupid. How can politics you not love it? so stupid. How can you not love it though? Like, and- I love it. I love it. And, but I have, you have to remind yourself every day you're in this business that politics is fundamentally stupid because it's full of people who are massively self-important and like believe that like Joe Biden what was the point of Joe Biden doing that? Was it like just Joe <laughs> Biden trying to be cutesy and funny? I guess. Or did Joe Biden think that having this Hispanic heritage event and playing Despacito, including playing Despacito on his phone, was going to legitimately convince voters like, oh, that's my guy. That's, that's my guy. My guy listens to the to the number one, you know, song of 2018. Yeah, sure. it's, I know. Uh, like that's, <laughs> it's like Joe it's Biden. It's like the hottest song yeah, of 2018 I know. That's summer. The thing. That's and the therefore, thing. now I have to support him. I know. That's the thing. Like, Joe Biden, it's like somebody showed him this song, and he's like, oh, man, I this, this is a break. This is a game changer for me. I'll play. I'll see. I'll show these Hispanics that I'm one of them. It's like, bro, everybody's heard that song. Like, that was the most, like, every radio station for, like, two years was playing that song on repeat. So, it's like, it's not as uh, groundbreaking as you think it is. But, man, it's, I don't know. The, the you got to love it, it's though. So, it's so funny. It's so funny. Like, the other hilarious part of it was, like, how do you ever come back like how do you ever come back from this like Joe Biden just routinely makes gaffes like this like the you ain't black gaffe the Cardi B gaffe this gaffe time and time again how many times are people going to let specifically Democrats come back from these gaffes that are nearly racist like it's it's really astonishing to me that people will be like, no, he supports my political agenda, and therefore he isn't racist. Now, that was exactly the type of rhetoric that the left was decrying in 2016 against Trump, and that's worthwhile like pointing out. I also think it's hilarious that no one's cut a video or a clip yet of Justin Bieber forgetting the words to Desposito. So when he was performing Desposito, he was just saying the word burrito and Dorito over and over <laughs> again. Do you remember that? Have I you do, ever seen this? I do not remember that. He, he had no idea what the Spanish was or what it meant when he sang the song. So he like went in on and performed it at one point and was just saying like Dorito and burrito all like over and over and over again. And I really feel like that's kind of what the left's identity <laughs> politics has turned into. It's just like, oh man, I forgot, but I need to say something in Spanish. So let me say 
Like, let me just add a arad onto every single onto every single word. Like lamparad. I will, like, I do oh, have to what admit. This computer arad. I do. I, <laughs> I do have to admit something. My band Southbound Fearing. This is several years ago. We toured with. Uh, a Spanish-speaking rock and roll band called Alpha Union. Great guys from Miami, Florida. Check them out. Great band, especially if you speak Spanish. If you speak, if you don't speak Spanish, it's you know tough to understand. But their songs are super catchy, and like I loved watching their set every night. But I don't speak Spanish, so like I, I kind of wanted to sing along with the songs because they would get stuck in my head. But I didn't actually know the words, so I would just say you know Mexican food names. I did do that to the tune of their songs. So that makes me just as bad as Joe Biden, I guess. <laughs> You, Justin Bieber, and Joe Biden. I think that's like the only vent, like point in the middle of your Venn diagram right there. I, I, f- I, fe- I, think that's I felt horrible because these guys are friends of mine, though. Like, I really should have tried to learn like a little bit of Spanish. But alas, I'm not. I'll have never, to check that band out. That's never cool. never claimed to be perfect, Brad. Never claimed to be perfect. <laughs> really creepy stuff out of Kamala Harris on Monday as well. Um, that woman just creeps me out, man. Like, she really is a witch. Like, she's just. She makes my skin crawl, but um, she referred to a potential Biden administration as the Harris administration. Um, yesterday, Biden did the same thing, um, uh, calling his future administration the Harris-Biden administration. See, I don't know if this is just a gaffe, if this is a Freudian slip, or if they're trying to like prep the voters. They're trying to inception the voters for like an early Biden <laughs> resignation or something. Like, I don't know, Honestly, either way, any of those three choices wouldn't surprise me. Well, it's hilarious because all of this comes on the wake of Rasmussen finding out that 59% of people think Joe Biden, like in one of their surveys, I don't, you know, Rasmussen's fairly reputable, yeah, um, but not, not the, not, not, you know, it's not heat streak, but it's not the cream of the crop Monmouth, but it's fairly reputable. And it right. says like 59% of Americans surveyed thought that Joe Biden wasn't going to finish his first term. So it's hilarious that now. Harris and Biden are almost hinting at the same thing. I don't think that it's hinting on purpose, right? Like uh, Joe Biden famously said earlier on the campaign trail that it was the O'Biden-Bama uh, administration. <laughs> so so I really think that on Biden's part, it's it's uh, just a gaffe, a, you know, everyday gaffe train that comes out of Joe Biden's mouth. But on Kamala Harris's, I almost feel like, you know, you could go into a little bit of a critical theory analysis on her because of her just like deep desire to be a petty authoritarian. Yes. Um, And, you know, as as reported now, I try to call balls and strikes as much as I can. I have a really hard time with Kamala Harris, given her record that I've done a full breakdown on my podcast. Um, If you haven't checked that episode out, um, it's called Kamala's Biden Her Time. Go check it out. Um, Clever. And I just basically go through her her complete record um, from when she was a district attorney in San Francisco, even prior to that, when she had a um, open affair um, with a man twice her age and Willie Brown, who was the eventual mayor of San Francisco. Um, And I really have a hard time calling balls and strikes because even Joe Biden in the debates after she called him a racist was saying, whoa, 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 you want to crack down on guns? That's all good and fun. But um Let's not violate the Constitution in the process, which is, you know, credit to where credit's due for Joe Biden um, in saying that. But obviously, he's kind of reneged on that position now, given that he's given Kamala Harris the VP pick and uh, said Beto O'Rourke's going to be running his Second Amendment policy. But nevertheless, he said that in a, in a debate and Kamala Harris laughed at him openly, laughed at him openly. Kamala Harris didn't support bills banning uh uh, banning botched abortions and trying to keep babies alive that were that, that survived botched abortions. So this attempt to be a petty authoritarian um, has something is something that's come out time and time again over the process of one Kamala's uh, Senate career, two uh, Kamala's career as Attorney General of California, and three obviously um, a major Democratic nominee for president and now vice president. So. It's just funny, man. That's like, just, Kamala that's Harris, just part of the course. It's just part of the course for her. Kamala Harris, you're absolutely right, by the way. But it's Kamala Harris just doesn't fit the mold of a running mate. You know, like she's she clearly wants to be president more than anything in life. Like she literally has just earbuds playing Harold of the Chief all night, every night when she goes to sleep. You know, like that's like uh, just because she wants to hear it every morning when she wakes <laughs> up. You know, and uh-huh. I mean that's just not the mold of a running mate. It's supposed to be this like loyal, low key supportive figure supporting the, the, you know, the top of the ticket. I mean, like, you know, Joe Biden was never going to try to upstage Barack Obama. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, or Mike Pence, like Mike Pence is like the, the 
just prototype VP, right? Uh, he just talks up Mike Donald Pence Trump. Mike Pence is pretty proto- prototype VP. George H.W. Bush. Yes. Even Al-, Al Gore. Al Gore and Bill Clinton. Like he, Al Gore didn't have the charisma of a Bill Clinton, and he was very supportive of the administration, never stepped out of line. Like, Kamala Harris is not that. And I think that's dangerous. And you saw this because, you know, every ticket gets a little boost when you name the running mate. That didn't happen. <laughs> In fact, Biden's numbers ticked down a couple points when he picked Kamala Harris because the Democratic voters rejected Kamala Harris. She got no support. She raised no money and she dropped out before Iowa. So letting this monster author- wannabe authoritarian run wild and call it the Harris administration. I think that's going to backfire, man, because the Democratic voters did not want Kamala Harris. Yeah, even the Democratic voters didn't want Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris finished her campaign polling in the single digits um, in her home state of California, which is hilarious. I mean, Yikes. she almost lost her attorney general race. People oh, yeah. don't remember this. Yep. She she almost lost her attorney general of California race to a Republican who was like just like the most boring candidate in the history of the world. Um, and she also finished nationally polling at 2% in her campaign. Now, what the media has done is me- the media has largely focused on the fundraising numbers. Yes, after Kamala Harris was announced to the ticket, they raised what I believe seventy-two million dollars over the course of over the course of the next forty-eight hours, something like that. Just absolutely astronomical fundraising numbers for the Democrats. Good for the Democrats. Worrisome for Trump, especially given how much money Trump has already spent. So, right. um, uh, you know, expect Biden to break out the bank. Um, as the election is coming up, and especially with the word war tapes, I mean, those are just going to be played on repeat on your television, folks. Um, so be prepared for that. But that's what the media has done. The media has has conflated um, donors with actual grassroots enthusiasm and support for the Democratic ticket entirely. Now, as I said, Kamala Harris reigns from California. She was a San Francisco district attorney general. Where does she have her connections? She has her connections in a lot of big money in Silicon Valley, as well as long-established big money uh, connections in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, she's also widely supported by Wall Street. Other Wall Street, certain Wall Street figures sent out um, letters to their partners slash donors slash investors saying that, don't worry, the Democratic con- uh, ticket is, quote, under control um, now that Kamala Harris is is picked as the, as the vice president. Biden was literally, like, nicknamed the, what is it, the, the senator of the banks. So- Oh, yeah. So- here, here, you, here you see like, oh, the combination of those two are going to make for a powerful fundraising pair. And yes, it's important to point out those numbers in a, in a country that elects um, the candidate with the most money over 90% of the time. Um, but I think that that statistic is a little bit overstated in a, pre- in a presidential election where there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm for the man on the top of the ticket and the woman behind him on the ticket. And that's a serious problem for Joe Biden um, that the that a lot of people in the media are ignoring. And I think that my my colleagues over at the Daily Caller have been absolutely astounding um, on their reporting on on the enthusiasm gap because it is it is worrisome for Biden. Um, and it does give Trump hope when the polling suggests that, you know, even though Trump is tightening, there isn't a ton of hope. Trump is now predicted to believe the lose to lose the election by about 20 to 30 electoral college votes, um, which is, you know, Pennsylvania and Michigan or Pennsylvania and Wisconsin or Pennsylvania and and one of those other swing states up there. Um, so New Hampshire, Nevada, keep an eye on. I mean, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, I, I is fairly up for grabs. Nevada is probably going to go uh, the way a Democrat or the, the way Republicans. But uh, Arizona is the one that I'm currently worried about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and we have three debates. You know, we have three debates coming up that could make a difference. The first one is uh, in two weeks, less than two weeks. <laughs> Boy, oh boy! <laughs> the, wow, uh, the twenty nine. Isn't that so, going to be fun? You know, I almost, I almost texted you the other day because I wanted to enter some, some bets with you, and it's, you know, I'll take. Um, also, I just said Nevada was going to go red. It's going to go blue. That was a mistake on my part. Um, but I, I wanted to make a bet with you to see who do you think is going to threaten the other with some sort of physical altercation or, or challenge first. Oh, it'll be Joe. It'll be Joe. Yeah, Joe Biden will threaten to punch Donald Trump in the first debate. Okay, okay, here's here's the bet because I agree with you. Here's the bet: will will Donald Trump challenge Joe Biden to a cognitive test before Joe Biden threatens Trump with a physical test? I mean, I think it'll be in I'll the same. I'll take whatever one you don't have. Yeah, I I, th- I could see it happening in the same like five second window. Right, but, but who says it first? Trump Trump who could goes be like there? Tr- Trump could go there. He could say like. 
I'll challenge you to an IQ test, old man. Look at yourself. You have dementia. And then Joe would be like, oh, oh I want to take you behind the gym right now. And Trump would be like, really? Look at yourself. I'd beat the shit Trump's out of you. Like, and then the American Trump's people like, That's will... actually really rapey. That's <laughs> like really rapey. No, I think uh, if I had to guess, I'd say that Trump brings up Biden's crackhead son. <laughs> and then... Biden threatens to punch Trump or something like that. I think that's how it's going to go. Down. I, the where's Hunter rhetoric has yeah, been really toned down. Um, but you know what? Last night was a good showing from Trump. That's why I'm, I'm kind of thinking that maybe Joe's the one who initiates contact on this issue. <laughs> in the debates. I, I, I feel like, cause I feel like some sort of issue is going to arise. Like at some point, like <laughs> that golden moment will happen. But look, and Brad, hold on. Trump Brad, looked really, Brad. really poised. He looked really, really poised but, last night on that. On hold on that, a sec. Uh, Just look at how we're talking about. Look at how we're talking about the president and the former vice president. We're talking about who's going to threaten to punch each other first. <laughs> Damn it, America! This is what we get. We deserve this. We're being punished. No, that's 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 as American as apple pie right there. <laughs> Hamilton, Burr, oh Jackson, Quincy Adams. It's been around for Corn a long pop. time. Man. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. Sumner, I mean, obviously Sumner took a cane to someone and actually nearly beat them half to death. Um, <laughs> so, you know what? Yeah, yeah all of this, all, the idea that the, that's one of the funny things is, is I love exposing media bias and it deserves to be exposed, especially when something um, that is clearly, uh, you know, so far good, like the Middle East peace deal happening, um, it's good to point out media bias, but media bias has been with us since the days of the founding. Um, this kind of in, insane rhetoric. I mean, like John Adams called Alexander Hamilton a Creole bastard at one point. Um, Alexander Hamilton constantly made fun of John Adams' weight. So this type of political rhetoric has been around for a really, really long time. Um, I think I think that one thing that we saw was it waned during the 20th century, specifically between the 40s and the early 2000s because of the kind of long rally around the flag effect created by the by World War II and the Cold War. Um, but I feel like it's coming back into vogue and Trump is Trump is merely um, a manifestation of those long, deep seated trends in, in American history. Yeah, I, I definitely think you're right. And and just one more point on the debates, and then I'll let you go. I know we're way over time, but um, one more point on the debates. Who cares? We're having fun. Yeah, yeah, man. Time flies when you're having fun. But um, I, I, in all seriousness, Trump should go after Hunter Biden. Trump should do something to get under Joe Biden's skin because I think it's just the the, the mental decline of Joe Biden. Anytime he's challenged, anytime he hears something he doesn't like, he flips out. Like, you know, he threatened to punch the guy— in Iowa, the look, hey, look fat. He calls the guy fat. Hey, fat. <laughs> you know, he challenged Come some. On, he challenged some old man to a push-up contest. Like he, he, like he can't. He does not do well under questioning. And if Trump challenges him or, or you know makes fun of him or brings up his son smoking crack and 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 or, you know and all this stuff, like he's gonna flip out and say something horrible. Like Biden will say something like much worse. Like I know Trump says like awful stuff all the time, but like Biden will like he'll like. I don't know. He'll say something like unforgivable you know I mean? like or something my super like... racist or something because yeah, he can't control like... himself. Like when he's pushed, he just loses it. And I think, I think Trump would be wise to try to push his buttons a little bit. I think Trump would be wise to push his buttons a little bit. And I've kind of been wargaming this out on what this, what the possible scenarios could be. Um, and it's ended up in a really, really dark place. Like what <laughs> the worst, what the worst possible could be. And the worst that it could be is, Trump says something nasty about Hunter. Joe Biden pivots to Bo, and then Trump replies with, "Well, that didn't like stop Hunter from going after his wife while he was still alive with terminal uh, cancer." Uh, like I could just see that unfolding in real time, oh, and no. just being like, "Holy crap!" Like that's the worst possible option. Yeah, that's the that would be rough. That would be rough. Like regardless of what you think of Joe Biden, like. Do I think Joe Biden's a terrible dude? No, I don't think he's a terrible dude. I think he has terrible policies, personally. But but do I think he's a terrible dude? No. Do I think that his life has been beset with tragedy and horrible, horrible stories? Of Absolutely. Yeah. Like, the loss of his wife and daughter is just tragic. The loss of his son, Bo. Honestly, having to, you know, as a father, having to deal with, you know, your great son passing away and your and your other son just being a degenerate constantly, 
has to be something that hurts Joe Biden because Joe Biden's sitting there thinking this kid grew up without his mom and without his sister, you know? So that has to be like unbelievably traumatizing for Joe Biden. And I'm not making excuses for any of Joe Biden's other behavior in this process, but it is something that, that people ought to recognize. And, and, uh, so I understand Joe Biden being sensitive about those issues, but they will come up and Joe Biden needs a thicker skin, especially from when he's answering questions from voters and when he's answering questions in debates and when he's answering questions from the press if the press ever decide to ask you know really hard-hitting questions of joe biden um because i think joe biden's kind of got grown used to not talking to the media one and two when he does talk to the media it's overwhelmingly um softball questions and trump does this a little bit too like trump struggled in the interview with chris wallace and the and in the axios interview and he he had his tougher moments last night and so that's why he likes going on with laura ingram and even laura ingram pushed him a little bit which was i was pleasantly surprised at but that's why he loves calling into hannity right so so this this happens the self-selection of of how you're going to be portrayed in interviews happens in politics um but again it's the media's job to not you know, to resist that process when it's put in place by politicians. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I don't know. I don't know if Trump will go there in these debates, but uh, I, I de he not he's, that far. He, no. He's definitely capable of it. <laughs> he's definitely. Uh, I wouldn't put it past him. I, I will say that. And we can end there, Brad. Uh, sorry for keeping you over, man. I always love talking to you. I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Where can everybody check out your show? Uh, and where can everybody check out the Daily Caller? And where can everybody follow you online and keep in touch and all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure to come on and talk foreign policy with you because, you know, especially when we're talking Israel, it's just such a word salad sometimes answering these questions because there's so many different dates that you have to get straight in your mind and so many different events. And I'm, I'm glad that we were able to get through all of that for your viewers today. You can find me on social media at Bradley Devlin on Twitter, um, at the Brad Dev on Instagram, follow at T-E-I-T-R. So that's an abbreviation for the elephant in the room, underscore podcast on Twitter. That's the, the podcast on my Twitter and listen to my podcast. All right, everybody follow Brad. He is great. Everybody check out the Elephant in the Room podcast. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I will be back on Monday. No gimmicks.